This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Mount Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello and welcome to Savor. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're talking about ice. Yes. Um, and this is one of those things I can't have because of my tooth. Oh, really? Oh, man. Yeah, but I actually I mean, did not like ice before that. Oh, really? No. I thought it was taking up space that could be used for more drink. Oh. It's a waste. I, see, I like I like cold. I mean, I lived for like 14 years in Florida, too. So mm-hmm. ice was pretty important to my lifestyle. I like a chilled drink without ice. Ah. (laughs) Does this impact your cocktail decisions? Like if you're at a cocktail bar, do you specifically try to order straight up drinks rather than on the rocks drinks? I do like straight up drinks better, but I also appreciate that rocks slow you down. In the case of alcohol specifically, (laughs) like that's Uh two different nights that I might be aiming to have. I see you. Um, But despite (laughs) all of this, I have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to ice molds. I've got like... Any Star Wars thing you can imagine. The Millennium Falcon is my favorite. I got the spherical thing, the big cube thing. I'm not sure why. I love a big cube. (laughs) Who doesn't love a big cube? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Show us that person, please. All right. This all brings us to our question. Ice. What is it? Well, ice is frozen water. Done and done. Yep. Cool. (laughs) Well, now that that's over with. (laughs) Now, no, the technical details that go into ice being frozen water are really fascinating. I promise you're making a face like you don't entirely believe me. But okay, let's break this down a little bit. Follow along. Okay. All right. First, basic physics review. Any given substance has a temperature at which it's solid, at which it's liquid, and at which it's gas, right? Yeah. There's also plasma and like a few weird ones, but most of those are not going to get served to you in your glass of root beer. So let's concentrate for now. Okay. If you apply increasing energy to a solid like plastic or iron, the molecules in it will become increasingly energetic. They'll break structural bonds among each other and start slooshing around. Mm. And that's that's a liquid. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Apply even more energy to that liquid, and the molecules will get even more energetic. They'll break apart entirely and float off. That's a gas. And heat is energy, or the transfer of energy from one object to another. But yeah, so okay, if you've got water, that's a bunch of molecules of H2O hanging out with each other. H2O, that's two hydrogen atoms stuck to an oxygen atom. 
sort of like a Mickey Mouse head. I never thought of that, but yeah. Yeah, no, that's basically what it looks like. Under normal Earth circumstances, from between the temperatures of about 0 to 100 Celsius or 32 to 212 Fahrenheit, the hydrogen atoms in those H2O molecules are constantly making and breaking loose bonds with each other. They're sluicing. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) You look so scandalized. I am scandalized. (laughs) Sluicing, my goodness. (laughs) But, okay, so you apply heat above that upper point, they'll break those bonds and escape as water vapor into the air. And if you remove energy to below that lower point, the molecules will slow down so much that the hydrogen atoms lock up with each other in these fascinatingly orderly repeating patterns called crystals. Water molecules take up more space locked together as crystals than they do as a liquid, which is A, why water expands as it freezes, and B, why ice floats in water. It's the same mass, but less dense. And, physically speaking... When you put ice in a drink, you're not making the drink cold. You're making the ice warm until it melts back into water. You are blowing my mind, Lauren. (laughs) Blowing my mind. (sighs) What about about nutrition, though? (laughs) Well, the average ice cube, I believe, has (laughs) 2,738 calories, so watch out. Uh, No, it's, it's water, so... It's made of water. It's made of water. Unless you're making ice out of espresso, which I do recommend, in your coffee, not in your water. Um, Ooh. ooh. (laughs) Or like pickle juice or Kool-Aid. Then that's different. But we're talking about water. Water, Ice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. And also, there's like a lot more than I could have said about ice physics up there. But I'm – this is a food show. (laughs) It is. And one of the things that I kept running into on this episode that I love about ice is, I mean, think about ice skating and ice sculpture. There's so many non-food things that ice is involved in. But I think we should do an episode on ice sculpture at some point because it is food and hospitality related. It's adjacent. It's a, yes, enough so. I think it deserves its own episode. (laughs) Oh, I'm in. I was sort of bummed when I didn't get to research it too much. (laughs) There's a little bit about ice sculpture in here. (laughs) But uh, Americans love ice. And we have probably heard, I've definitely heard, uh, that when you're traveling in different countries, not to expect as much ice in drinks. And that has been my experience. Again, I'm totally on board with this, but a lot of people I travel with <laughs> were not so happy about it. Uh-huh. The ice industry makes a cool $2.5 billion annually. And most of that comes from the prepackaged stuff you find uh-huh. in those, like, beer coolers and stores. Sure. The word ice in its modern English spelling dates from the 1400s, which is like a surprisingly long time for a word to have survived in a, in a single spelling. Um, but the sound of the word actually dates back to uh, Proto-Germanic, which is also just a very long time yeah. for a word to have stuck around. I love that. It is. I also love, as is clear, uh, <laughs> novelty ice shapes. I was trying to remember, was it Virgin Atlantic flights that had those ice cubes shaped like Richard Branson's head? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's true. I didn't hear about that, but that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine having like a mold of your own face for ice cubes for people on a plane that you own I, for them to enjoy? I hadn't imagined that previously. But now, but now I'm thinking of it, and I like it the more that I think about it. It's resolution season, Lauren. You could make a goal. You could make a goal. I believe 3D printing can make this dream come true. I think it could, and we have access. But anyway, there's a lot of shapes out there. There's smiley faces, goldfish, teeth, shark fins, Legos, snowflakes, stars, skulls, fossils, ships, robots, guns, because freeze, get it? Oh. Brains, because freeze, get it? Beans, <laughs> meant to be used with coffee as in cool beans, get it? Those oh. shot glasses, icicles for wine. So many options out there. It's a it's a beautiful ice scape. <laughs> it is. Or a frozen hellscape. Ooh. I just like saying frozen hellscape. It's a it's a good term. Mm-hmm. I wanted to put a note in here about refrigerators and freezers, um, kind of mixing in with the physics, but also in a transition sort of way, because these are amazing machines that transfer heat from the inside of a box to the outside of that box. Thus, they regulate the temperature on the inside of that box and keep it relatively low compared with the air around the box. I don't usually think about it, but it really is just awesome. 
Yeah. And it's not only awesome because cold things are fun to eat. As it turns out, most bacteria that cause disease in humans, that is pathogenic bacteria, go into a hibernation of sorts below about 40 degrees Fahrenheit, a.k.a. 4.4 Celsius, wherein they're not reproducing. And that's why we keep our fridges at or below that temperature. However, many non-pathogenic bacteria uh, and other microorganisms can grow at those temperatures, and some of them like eating our food as much as we do, which is what causes food to spoil. As we've said before on the show, microorganisms are eating your food before you get a chance to, causing unpleasant flavors and textures. But even they will go into hibernation or maybe even die off when you bring food down to around 32 Fahrenheit or zero Celsius because that's the temperature at which water freezes. And microbes generally need liquid water to survive just as much as we do. Mm -hmm. For a long time, ice cubes weren't just a thing to put in drinks. They were one of the only things that could keep your food safe to eat for more than a couple hours. And we'll get into the history of that right after we get back from a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So... American rapper and actor Ice Cube was born as O'Shea Jackson in 1969. Oh, wait. Uh, Yeah. I mean, also a good Ice Cube to talk about. He is a good Ice Cube to talk about. (laughs) Thank you for coming along on this lame joke with me. Um, All right. So Ice has been around for a long, long time. But humans harvesting ice is... Not quite as old. It's still old, (laughs) but not quite as old. Comparatively. Right. Yeah. In some northern areas where ice is easier to come by, hunter-gatherers were harvesting ice earlier than other people, primarily for preservation and storage. Hunters in icy regions would use the ice as a way to make the meat from their kills keep for longer periods. They might not have known why this worked precisely, but they knew that it did. Mm -hmm. In some cases, when any leftover kill was buried to hide it from predators or other hunters, and the conditions were right, they were essentially freezing food. Sometimes this happened via totally unavoidable accident. (laughs) It was just that cold. Gonna happen. Um, Natural caves or insulated underground pits or chambers were popular ways to keep things like grains— chilly and preserved. Ice pits existed 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, 
Evidence suggests the Chinese were harvesting and storing ice by 1,100 BCE, and this ice might be transported for several miles. The upper class in ancient civilizations like Persia, Rome, Greece, and Egypt who could afford to pay someone to go up a mountain and get ice and or snow used it in drinks, chilled fruits, and frozen desserts like flavored ices, no matter the weather. And tea, which has been around for quite some time as CRT episode for that. Oh, goodness, um, yes. Yes, was one of the first flavored drinks to be ice, also um, lemonade. Ah. Early lemonade, Ooh. yeah. Uh, in Persia in particular, by around 400 BCE, they'd worked out how to create ice through the fascinating physics of nocturnal cooling. Ooh, nocturnal cooling. Nocturnal cooling. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So this is a way to make artificial ice, to make man-made ice in which you're taking advantage of this natural thing that just happens to make ice overnight, even when the ambient air temperature is well above freezing. Mm. Mm-hmm. So Persia's cities, uh, even in deserts, were serviced by these underground canals. And to make this ice, they would make these wide, shallow pits or channels that were protected by tall walls from daytime sun and nighttime wind and fill them with just a couple inches of water. Overnight, because the open sky is very cold when the sun isn't hitting it, heat would radiate up out of the water into the sky. And by the early hours of the morning, the water would freeze. It can be like 40 degrees Fahrenheit outside, like 4.5 Celsius or more, and this will work. Wow. Yeah. The surface area of the pans or channels also helps. As water evaporates into the air, it takes a bit more heat energy to do it. And they had these domed buildings to store the ice in during warmer times um, that were highly insulated, vented at the top, built over these cool pits. It was amazing technology for the time. That sounds pretty amazing. That's that's another thing that I didn't get to look into, but things like igloos. Ice has so many uses. It does. It does. Oh, ice hotels. Ice hotels. I've been to an ice bar. Yeah. All these memories are flooding back. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I was in China. It was so cold. Anyway, <laughs> you're already like a you run. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, like like you're you're chilly all the time. Yeah, there's usually some gloves and a scarf uh, <laughs> involved in this podcasting. Oh yeah, she's been in here in like a parka. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> still cold. <laughs> I had fun though at the ice bar. <laughs> but back to the history. Yes, in the Mediterranean, snow harvested from the mountains was sold per day or stored in pits that were covered with branches, leaf mats, or cloth. While Alexander the Great was in Petra, he oversaw the digging of trenches that were then filled with snow and covered with branches so that his soldiers could enjoy chilled wine in the summer. How kind. Yeah, chilled wine, very important. Snow and ice weren't just used for food and drink and food storage. Early physicians also used ice um, to treat all sorts of ailments, uh, many that we still use ice for today, like inflammation and fever. But when the Roman Empire fell, so too did ice Ah. from popularity. Hmm. Um, And it wasn't until uh, like the 13th and 14th centuries that it started to kind of come back onto the scene. Uh, Ice harvested from Lebanon's mountains was shipped to Cairo to be enjoyed by Egyptian royalty. Around this time, ice sculptures started to enter the elegant party scene as a centerpiece at banquets. And if we look at Europe, Italians often get the credit for reintroducing ice to that continent, followed swiftly by the French. But the French were doing it more as a show of wealth. So were the Italians. They both were. Um, (laughs) Like the case of Henry III, who impressed his guest with tables piled high with snow and ice. However, many Europeans turned up their noses at the idea of chilled drinks. One quote from the time described it as a mark of excessive and effeminate luxury. Huh. Yeah. Huh, indeed. Over on the Indian subcontinent by the mid to late 16th century, some of the also not unshowy royalty of the Mughal Empire were having ice harvested in the Himalayas and carted down daily as Ice drinks and desserts were very vogue, and uh, also it's just hot as all get out during the summer in uh, a lot of the cities that the royalty were hanging out in. In times when that was too expensive or just as a supplement, their ice cellars would be filled up with ice created through the aforementioned nocturnal cooling. And 
some of the reports I was reading about it, they had a great system set up. Like outside of the cities in open fields, they had these shallow beds dug lined with a straw or other dried plant waste for insulation. And on cold, clear, still nights, a whole team of workers would be called with like vocal calls or music to come fill earthenware pans an inch or two deep with water and fit them into the beds. And in the morning, they would pack the ice into the cellars. That is pretty amazing. Good system. Indeed. Well, maybe not for the workers. No. But for ice. Yes. Productive system. That's a good word. (laughs) Uh, Around the same time, many of the well-to-do in Europe, the Middle East, and China had ice houses from palaces and estates to monasteries and abbeys. I'm starting to think the well-off people in in this time, in these areas, just had a lot of houses. You got your pineapple (laughs) house. You got your orangery. You got your ice house. Just a very specific little house for whatever yeah. for whatever thing you want to show off that you could not only get but could make a house for. <laughs> um, of course, they did have to show off these things even more. And by the 18th century, the architecture of these ice houses had gotten quite showy, featuring things like Grecian pillars or Gothic archways. These ice houses were almost solely used for ice at first, makes sense. But not until later did people start to view them as we might a refrigerator, as a ah, place to store food. Yeah. However, ice had become more commonplace by this time. They might not have had ice houses, but peasants in Europe were known to have little stacks of ice constructed out of branches, leaves, and heather. For insulation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they would put these structures near water that froze during the wintertime. During the 19th century Europe... In places where warm and mild winters failed to produce ice, merchants that depended on ice for business, like butchers, would scramble to buy ice from Greenland's cargo ships of ice. Archaeological evidence indicates that ice pits were present in Jamestown, Virginia, all the way back in the 17th century as the colonists bought the European proclivity for chilled drinks and ice desserts with them. And the technology of these little makeshift ice houses, yeah. Right. To get this ice, ice harvesters would cut it from frozen bodies of water in the winter and store it in these pits or cellars during the rest of the year. They also um, might have built huts over these cellars to A, prevent loss of cool air, and B, to keep perishable items in, like meat and milk. By the 18th century, the pits and cellars were improved upon with the ice house, which was used for chilling food and drink and making ice cream. Ice cream comes up all the time in the history of ice um, and storing ice, too. These were more formal cellars that were reinforced with stone lining and topped with more elaborate buildings. Yes, and uh, two people who had probably very elaborate buildings, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, Mm -hmm. who both had ice houses. One of the first advertisements for ice was published in Philadelphia in 1799. Europeans visiting the northern United States in the 1790s reported Americans drinking iced water and that hotels employed buckets of ice to cool down their rooms. Ah. The first cargo shipment of ice made the journey from New York to Charleston, South Carolina, also in 1799. And one fellow out of Boston, Frederick Tudor, made quite a lot of money shipping ice harvested from Massachusetts overseas between 1805 and 1860. Over 12,000 tons of ice. Who? His nickname? The Ice King. Like from Adventure Time? Is that his name? It is, isn't it? I think so. The Ice King. The Ice or King. it's like Game of Thrones. Oh. It could be, uh, you know, depending on <laughs> the mood that you're in. Um... <laughs> He pushed for the construction of ice chest. He sent sales agents out to encourage businesses to sell ice cream with an ice chest, ah. <laughs> sung the praises of ice for preserving food, helped popularize the sale of fizzy water, and he gave any bar owner that agreed to sell iced drinks at the same price as warm ones a year's worth of free ice. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Oh, Trixie. Yes. And perhaps in part due to this, the market and popularity of cold drinks grew a lot during the mid-19th century. If we go back a bit to Frederick Tudor, he's got an interesting story. Yeah. He got the idea to get into the ice biz from a passing remark from his brother about how nice it would be to have an ice-cold drink and ice cream on a hot summer day. They were picnicking when he said this. (laughs) Um, And Tudor was like, Eureka, and decided that they should ship some ice down to the Caribbean. He reasoned once people tried it, 
They wouldn't be able to go on without it. <laughs> the brothers were just about the only ones who thought this was a good idea, though. Um, no one in the Boston area would transport the ice. So they had to spend about $5,000 of their own money to get their own ship. Their 1806 launch was met with this observation from the Boston Gazette. No joke. A vessel with a cargo of 80 tons of ice has cleared out from this port of Martinique. We hope this will not prove to be a slippery speculation. <laughs> oh, you gotta <laughs> give props where props are due, Lauren. <laughs> when the ice arrived to Martinique, none the worse for travel, no one wanted it. Oh, No one wanted it. Um, and Tudor's brother left the business, leaving Frederick all by his lonesome. A couple of trade embargoes and a dwindling fortune later, he finally turned a profit in 1810. However... His fortune quickly cooled thanks to the weather, <laughs> dubbed ice famines, war, and bailouts for some of his relatives. Huh. I like that it's more Aww. than one bailout. Yeah. Tudor ended up in debtor's prison three times during the span of 1809 to 1813 and spent much of his time outside of debtor's prison avoiding the sheriff. <laughs> He was determined, though, and of this determination, the idea of get one free, of giving away that free ice was born, the free ice chest, too. Um, Shipping improvements helped, stacking the ice closer together, insulating with sawdust instead of straw, and his business took off. Tudor partnered with Nathaniel Wyeth, who got the idea to use horse-drawn plows to cut the ice along square grids. Then laborers sawed these ice grids into blocks, which they then floated downstream to be to be put up on a conveyor belt that transported them to ice houses, which was pretty ice farming. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't safe though. Um, numb hands, oh, yeah. sharp tools, heavy uh, towers of ice that slid and broke bones. Um, something called ice man's knees, or knees that were covered in bruises and blood after days on end of shoveling ice. And it wasn't as profitable as they wanted it to be either. Only 10% of this ice was ever sold. Still, Tudor kept pushing. He was once quoted as saying ice would make him inevitably and unavoidably rich. Wow. He really had his <laughs> heart and head set on this. He got his Ice King nickname after a shipment of 180 tons of ice arrived in Calcutta in 1833. The British stationed there loved the ice. Some even credited the success of his shipment with reopening the trade route between India and Boston. Oh, wow. Queen Victoria reportedly loved Tudor ice, too, specifically Tudor ice, and had it shipped from Boston rather than use what was more readily available to her in Europe. Huh. 52,000 tons of ice made it to 28 U.S. cities by 1847, either by ship or train, and over half of that was Tudor's. He had ice harvesting rights to most of the ponds in Massachusetts, and Henry David Thoreau once wrote about watching the ice harvesting. He was both annoyed and impressed. <laughs> I mm. feel like that's just Thoreau in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> in general, yeah. <laughs> Tudor's ice helped along innovations in medicine and science as well. It impacted so many industries like fishing and beer, Tudor died in 1864, a rich man, and this is when the American ice harvesting scene was at its most competitive. It was one of the most powerful industries in the United States at the dawn of the 20th century. Prior to and during the time of Tudor, by the way, there were other methods of producing ice, um, a salt and mineral acid mixture by machine, but these methods were expensive and produced lower quality ice and were primarily used in areas where getting ice was difficult, like polluted areas or the American South during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. But let's jump to 1844. Okay. All right. Looking to alleviate some of the discomfort of his yellow fever patients, an American physician by the name of John Gorey built a refrigerator to cool the room they were housed in. It's possible this is the first instance of an ice tray. Documentation suggests that the patients received ice drinks. Australia's James Harrison got a patent for an ice maker in 1855, and Alexander Twining or Twining of Connecticut patented one in 1853. We get Gustavus Swift shipping chilled beef as opposed to living cows via train in 1878. And around this time, folks started developing technology to make 
higher quality, and commercially sustainable artificial ice. By the 1890s, the production of artificial ice was on the rise such that ice factories were being opened in the temperate American North, in addition to the slightly longer-standing businesses in the South and down into South America. These factories were essentially giant refrigerators with huge ice trays that would create blocks of ice that weighed some 320 pounds, like 145 kilos, over the course of 60 days by circulating cold compressed gas through pipes under the trays. And by the turn of the century, this artificial ice was often cheaper than natural ice, even in the North. And some considered it to be superior because it was more like standardly compact than natural ice, which often has layers with uh, bubbles or with softer packed crystals. And uh, the artificial stuff could be cleaner as well because it was made from distilled water rather than whatever happened to show up in a lake. Right. Yeah. By that turn of the century, ice was widespread enough and cheap enough that many Americans had an ice box in their house. This is a precursor to the fridge. It was sort of a wooden cabinet insulated with a metal like a tin or zinc with a place for a big block of ice and a drip tray underneath. You'd have blocks delivered frequently to replace them as they melted. Icemen, and during World War I, ice women, made daily rounds. Yeah. In 1914, we get Fred Wolf's Dolmery, <laughs> which is probably just D-O-M-E-L-R-E, which was the domestic electric refrigerator. And this was a fairly small device meant to be put in ice boxes in the place of a block of ice to keep the interior cool. But it wasn't particularly affordable or reliable. Right. And it was not a success. <laughs> but... It featured a basic ice cube tray design that went on to influence future designs. And as we enter the 20s and 30s, most refrigerator manufacturers included an ice cube tray. So that's something. Yeah. Speaking of refrigerators, this was kind of the death knell of the competitive ice harvesting industry in America. People could just get ice at home. And there wasn't really a need to ship it across the country. And what about dry ice? What about it? Uh, people knew it was a thing going all the way back to 1835. But 1924 is the first year that someone, Thomas Slate, sold it, something only possible because of innovations leading to refrigerated rail cars. Dry ice is a whole other episode. It is indeed. Also really fun if you're making an exploding volcano cake. <laughs> um, then, in 1925, we get the Galvanator. This was the first refrigerator <laughs> that came with the self-contained compressor and cooling system. It was named for discoverer of absolute zero, Lord Kelvin. Also, one of my favorite lame jokes from an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie is when he kills Absolute Zero in Running Man, and he says, Absolute Zero, now plain zero. <laughs> that was a really good Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm impressed with myself. Um, the first rubber ice cube patent was filed in 1928 by Lloyd Groff Coatman and Clarence Birdseye uh, yes, that Clarence Birdseye, um, sells his patent for frozen food to General Foods Corporation in 1929. And you can see our frozen food episode for so much more about that. Oh, yeah. Beginning in 1931, Frigidaire fridges come with Freon. While it was safer than chemicals that had been used previously, it was still not good for the environment. It wasn't until the 1970s that people started raising the alarm about how bad this stuff was for the planet. And this ice cube thing took another step in 1933 when Guy Tinkham invented the flexible stainless steel all-metal ice tray that ejected ice cubes by flexing sideways. The McCord ice tray. Price? 50 cents. Mm. A year later, we get the first motorized ice shaving machine, thanks to Ernest Hansen. And ice cubes were considered a, quote, delightful and trendy novelty in the late 30s through the mid-40s, according to the Smithsonian Natural Museum of American History. Another delightful and trendy novelty, the Zamboni! The Zamboni! <laughs> I don't know how delightful and trendy it is, but I, I feel like it is. Um, it debuted in 1949. And this was the answer to the Zamboni family's ice block factory. It flooded, <laughs> and uh, they just had, like, an ice skating rink. <laughs> uh, well, that's what they turned it into anyway. And then they were asking, well, what do we do? Now it's got all of these dents and rivets, and you know what? They, uh, <laughs> they invented the Zamboni. They did. 
That's great. It is. Talk about turning, what is it, like ice water into ice skating rink? Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> sure. Um, the ice maker refrigerator enters the market in 1953 and with round ice to boot. Mm. By the mid-1950s, 80% of Americans owned a refrigerator. Frigidaire comes out with the first ice maker in the door refrigerator in 1965. Uh, yeah, at that point, ice makers and fridges were widespread, and I suspect Frigidaire was looking to get a leg up. Mm-hmm. And then our most important fact of the episode— Famous ice lover Mr. Freeze graces the page of a Batman comic for the first time in 1966. That, that's critical. Very important to a food <laughs> deep dive about ice. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, and also speaking of Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're right. Oh, yeah. Okay, what's a good quote from him in that movie? He says the Ice Age. Oh, Lauren, what is it? Every single thing he says is an ice <laughs> pun. But mostly all I can remember is the trailer with him going like, okay, everybody, chill. <laughs> well, with that, <laughs> we're going to pause for one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Apple Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we spent that ad break going over Arnold Schwarzenegger quotes. And I realized I misquoted... The absolute zero quote. It's oh. sub-zero. So oh. don't, don't write in about it. Oh, they already did. <laughs> You're right. They did. They did. Um, but this brings us to these are modern times. Yes. More or less. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got to talk about those fancy ice cubes that you get in bars. Yes. Oh, oh. I didn't go into the physics of the sphery thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> The spirit thing. I'll do it at another time. I'm sorry. No, we forgive you. We forgive oh, you. It's a lot. Okay, um, as ice became more commonplace, so too did it become more common to use in cocktails. Mm-hmm. And certain cocktails called for certain types of ice, like shaved for mint juleps. There's lumps, lumped ice for um, other drinks. Uh-huh. And this was already happening in the 1800s because we have records of visitors commenting on the fantastic cocktail scene in the United States and how ice was a part of ah. that. Um, then wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, prohibition. Mm. So all went away. Um, it's taken this country a while to bounce back from that. And 
Also, the the dark pre-mixed drink days of the 80s. But starting with the new millennium, bartenders really started getting into the art of the cocktail again. And ice is a part of that. But problem. No one really harvests ice from frozen bodies of water anymore. No. We get them in relatively the same shapes from refrigerators or ice machines. Apparently, this is known in the business as sh- Hotel ice. Uh, specifically, the kind of like quarter moon shaped yeah. ice cubes, the rounded, one side rounded ice cubes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so new ice machines were developed capable of producing larger, clearer ice cubes. But bartenders wanted more, more shapes, clearer ice. If you make ice shapes using a commercial freezer, they'll probably be cloudy. And that's because, okay, first of all, water isn't 100% pure H2O outside of, like, laboratory settings most of the time. The water from your faucet or from a bottle may contain a wee flex of dust or minerals or plant remains or whatever, along with some dissolved gases like oxygen and maybe minute air bubbles. When water freezes, that debris can concentrate into clusters that impede and scatter light, making otherwise clear ice look white and cloudy. That debris is what causes ice cubes that you make at home to be kind of hazy white in the middle. Uh, Most ice makers and ice cube trays will freeze water from the outside inward, which drives that gas and that debris towards the center of the cube. Secondly, when water freezes quickly, the crystals of ice that form tend to be super tiny, and each crystal's surfaces are reflective. So the more crystals you have in your ice, the more incoming light will scatter, and the cloudier your ice will look. So, to get clear ice, you need relatively little debris, and you need to let it freeze slowly. There are restaurant-grade ice machines that will freeze water super gradually, with the coldest temperatures concentrated on one side of the ice, which lets the gas and debris settle to the other end, which can be discarded. There are whole companies that specialize in producing clear ice, like Klein Bell that churns out 300-pound blocks of the stuff. In 2010, a bar in New York boasted the first in-house ice harvesting and production. Because they had one of those machines in their basement. Uh, But yeah, fancy bars are really into having these huge blocks of ice delivered and then cutting them and molding them into what they want for each individual drink. One of my favorite restaurants in Atlanta, Iberian Pig, has these huge chunks of clear ice that you can see them cutting from. Yeah, right behind the bar. It always makes me very nervous when a bartender busts out an ice pick. Like, not for my safety. Like, I mean, I'm (laughs) sure that they're holding themselves together more or less. But, like, oh, man. I'm always just like, no, just be careful with your fingers. You need those. Yeah. Um, Our ads team uh, here at work has a fancy ice cube tray that they they sort of tried to keep secret. And then the (laughs) secret got out. But it's like special occasion ice. I I think by special occasion they mean, like, Friday. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And if you want to make clear ice at home, um, it's, you know, it's not going to be perfect. But you can try um, boiling the water first to drive out any dissolved gases and then let it cool a bit and add it to your ice cube tray. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to end on a cultural note that I didn't bother to spread throughout. But, oh, man, I kind of thinking about it, I want to see if we can maybe do a crossover with Stuff to Blow Your Mind if um, they haven't already done an episode like this. Because, y'all, like, throughout the ages, folks have been fascinated by and terrified of ice. Just for literature examples, in the 1300s, Dante wrote about the innermost circle of hell being frozen and Satan himself being chest-deep frozen in ice. In 1823, uh, Mary Shelley and Dr. Frankenstein could, at the end, only set their monster adrift in ice. In 1931, Lovecraft wrote about horrors preserved and awoken in the Antarctic ice in the Mountains of Madness. And within the same decade, an author by the name of John W. Campbell wrote a story with a similar theme called Who Goes There, which would go on to be adapted into film several times, including the 1982 John Carpenter film The Thing, uh, which recently got a sequel and like a pretty good board game. We're still fascinated by this stuff. And For a final ending ending, a quote here from um, a book called The Spiritual History of Ice, Romanticism, Science, and the Imagination by one Eric G. Wilson. Polar terre incognite and other frozen shapes kill and cure. They blanch the earth into a corpse. They translucently reveal life's vital core. The whiteness of ice is the whiteness of the whale. Ooh. Give me chills. Chillin'. Chills. (laughs) (laughs) 
We could also end on the immortal words of Mr. Freeze. Allow me to break the ice. My name is Freeze. Learn it well, for it's the chilling sound of your doom. <laughs> mm. Both of these Wise are words. very serious, <laughs> very serious philosophical points. I hadn't really considered it, but yeah, um, yes, both serious <laughs> philosophical points. But also, yeah, ice is, it comes up a lot in our, our entertainment and our culture. Um, it is, it's such a fascinating food thing. It is. Oh, and, and yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of physics that make it really cool. It's the... It has 15 different crystal forms. Like a lot of things that do make up crystal shapes can have at different temperatures, different formations of crystallization. But ice has 15. That's like a lot. A lot. It's like more than two. <laughs> it's a bunch. Yes. A bunch, a lot, several, many. And oh, and like the reason why ice is slippery is great. And the, oh, there's a lot. There okay. is. If I could just, oh, I would do another several episodes about ice physics. If Me too. this were a physics show. But... Yeah, and I would just do bad Arnold Schwarzenegger impressions, <laughs> and it would be, I think, a very interesting show. Your, your, your impressions are great. <laughs> Both of our impressions are oh. top-notch. Oh, we should get nominated for something. <laughs> something. <laughs> best, best impersonations. Send us suggestions about what our <laughs> nominations should get us invited for, folks. Yes, yes. Oh, goodness. Which brings us to the end of this episode and to <gasps> Listen Ooh, Mr. Freeze. <laughs> <laughs> Eric wrote, When you mentioned the U.S. ban on importing unpasteurized cheeses, I vaguely remembered a video I'd seen a while ago. Turn out, turns out it's a part of a YouTube series from Bravo called Going Off the Menu. In this particular episode, two chefs attended a private dinner event featuring a variety of unpasteurized French cheeses that had been smuggled into the United States. The chef who hosts these events sells tickets for them through his website. Uh, seats are limited and seem to be in high demand. From the video, I got the impression that the location of the event changes sporadically, if not on every occasion, which further leads to the thrill of an illegal <laughs> cheese party. I figured both of you would enjoy another reason to ponder the black market of cheese. Oh. Illegal cheese party. Illegal cheese party. That's even better than a legal cheese party. Maybe my next cheese giving will be... <laughs> A little questionable on the legality side. <laughs> <laughs> you rebel. <laughs> yeah, I'm such a troublemaker. <laughs> Sam wrote, In Papua New Guinea, which is the most linguistically diverse country on the planet, there's this community of people who have a special language reserved exclusively for gathering nuts. There are two different beliefs for why this is. One of them is that there is a spirit who lives in the mountains who can rip people to pieces. According to the lore, he is a guardian of the nuts, and by talking about nuts, you can summon him and incur his wrath. The other belief is that by using language such as dry, rotten, small, etc., they actually tap into the performative nature of language or the magical power of words, and by speaking the words, they actually make it so, albeit unintentionally. So by saying the word wet, the fear is that they will make all the nuts wet, and so they use a different word. The phenomenon is known as linguistic perjuration and is used in England mostly when talking about the toilet as bodily functions are usually taboo, e.g. Uh, loo, restroom, little boy's room, powder room, instead of toilet. Moving on from nuts in general and on to another nut I can't eat, the hazelnut. Something like 80% of all hazelnuts grown worldwide are from Iran or Turkey, and two-thirds of this go directly into Ferrero Rocher products, Nutella et al. The company is really committed to reducing its waste output, so it uses the entire nut in the production process, including the shell, which is broken down and repurposed as the actual casing for its Ferrero Rocher chocolates. That's pretty cool. Huh. Huh. Yeah. Ooh. Hazelnut episode. Oh, yeah. Thank you for the linguistic note. As I'm sure y'all have noticed once or twice, we are <laughs> language nerds. So a little bit. Kind of bit. A little bit. Yeah, thanks to both of them for writing in. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is hello at saberpod.com. We're also on social media. What? We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us there at saberpod. We do hope to hear from you. Thank you, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. 
thank you to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.